This is a warning to you. Don't become complacent. Don't think you can live your life and act like everything's going to be fine and God's not going to interrupt this world like He's promised He's going to interrupt it. It will come. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How would you respond if someone were to tell you that the world was going to end tomorrow? Would you take it seriously? In all likelihood, perhaps not. But let's say that you were told that one specific event would initiate all the forthcoming events of the end times. Would that change your reaction? Well, hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part nine of a series titled The Future According to Jesus, exploring what Christ had to say about the end times and his eventual return. Around the year 30 AD, on a hill just outside Jerusalem, known as the Mount of Olives, Christ warned his disciples of a single life-changing event that would alter the course of history forever. And it's this warning and the event with its implications that Tom will begin to examine today. So let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. At some point still in the future, at the end of human history, Scripture tells us that there will be a period of seven years during which God will unleash His wrath against the earth and its people. That period of time, that seven-year period, is called the tribulation. Jesus told his disciples that it would be a time unparalleled in human history. What about us? What about us during that tribulation period that we've already begun to examine? We've looked at the first three and a half years and the beginning of birth pangs. Where will we be? Will we be there during the tribulation period. Or another way to ask the same basic question is this, is the rapture of the church mentioned in the Olivet Discourse? The answer is no, it's not. Why not? Well, remember the questions that they asked. They asked about the timing of the destruction of the temple. They asked about the signs of the establishment of the kingdom. And they asked about the signs of his second coming. None of those relate directly to the rapture of the church. But when you examine the same period of time that Jesus describes here in the Olivet Discourse, in the book of Revelation, the evidence affirms that believers will not be on earth during the tribulation except for those believers who are actually saved during the tribulation period. For example, if you look at the book of Revelation, it begins, obviously, with the letters to the seven churches. At that point, the church is on earth. The word church occurs 19 times in those chapters. When you get to chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, you have a group of people called the elders who represent the church, and they are at that point already in heaven. You fast forward through the tribulation period to chapter 19, the first 10 verses of chapter 19, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. And then in the second half of chapter 19, you have the saints returning from heaven with Christ at the second coming. 
The church is not clearly represented as being on earth from the end of chapter 3 until the second coming in chapter 19. Again, there are individuals who will be saved during that period of time. They're discussed, but not the church. So as you contemplate and reflect on the approaching storm of the wrath of God and the Lamb, you need to thank God that our Lord Jesus Christ rescues us from the approaching storm of His wrath. We will not be a part of it. We will be raptured prior to that event, or if our Lord delays His coming, we will be taken through death into His presence. So that brings us back to Mark 13, what we commonly call the Olivet Discourse. Here, Jesus explains the future. I've told you that the sermon is organized into four parts. You have in verses 5 through 13, the beginning of birth pangs. That describes the first three and a half years of that seven-year period we call the tribulation. The events that are described there transpire throughout time, throughout church history, in a small sort of Braxton Hicks variety, but when you come to the end, when you come to the first three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation, they will be incredible in their intensity. Then you have, beginning in verse 14, down through verse 23, the great tribulation. This is from the midpoint of that seven-year tribulation period to the end. The whole thing is called the tribulation, the seven years. The second three and a half years are called the great tribulation because that's when God unleashes His full fury against the world. Then in verse 24, down through verse 27, you have the second coming. And in verse 28, down through verse 37, you have the exhortation from our Lord to be alert and to be ready for His coming. Now last week we finished just the first part of this sermon, found in verses 5-13, through 13, the beginning of birth pangs. Notice the end of verse 8, these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And we discovered that there are really five birth pangs Jesus touches on here. There are false Christs in verses 5 and 6. There's war in the beginning of verse 8. Natural disasters, the second half of verse 8. Intense persecution, verses 9 through 13. And in the middle of that, in verse 10, we're reminded that the gospel will go global before time ends. Now, from the first century through the rest of human history, these things routinely occur. But as we approach the end, they will occur with increasing frequency and intensity. And in the first half of that seven-year period, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, these things will occur at their greatest intensity. We saw that in the first five seals in the book of Revelation, which really remarkably resemble what our Lord describes in these beginning of birth pangs. Now tonight, we come to the second part of Jesus' sermon about the future. And we come to the part that describes the great tribulation, that period of time that begins at the midpoint of the seven years of tribulation and runs to the end and to the second coming. The tribulation... Again, the tribulation, as I use that term, describes the entire seven-year period. The tribulation begins shortly after the rapture. 
I say shortly because we don't really know exactly how long the interval will be between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Scripture nowhere says that the tribulation is initiated by the rapture. There may even be a short time between them. But Scripture is clear what initiates the tribulation period. It is a person. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. There will be a person, a man of lawlessness, who will be revealed. And with his revelation, the tribulation period begins. Now, what we discover in several places in Scripture is that the midpoint of that seven-year period is punctuated with a catastrophic event. At exactly three and a half years, a catastrophic event will occur. Look with me at Mark 13, and let me begin reading for us in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand... Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Here we are introduced to the second half of that seven-year period. What we read about in verse 14 is a catastrophic event that occurs at the midpoint of those seven years, as we'll see in a moment, and initiates the great tribulation. Now, because the events described in verses 5 to 13 occur throughout history, This really marks the first real sign that the end is near that Jesus has given to his disciples. They ask about, when is the sign of your coming? When is the end? And Jesus really is giving them here the very first clearly recognizable sign. So what exactly is Jesus describing in verse 14, this initiating event? Well, there are clues here in Mark. Notice that part of verse 14 is quoted from the Old Testament. You'll notice in our New American Standard Bible when a passage or a part of a passage is in all caps, that means it's quoted from the Old Testament. So we know this is from the Old Testament. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you recognize that expression. But Matthew makes this even clearer. Keep your finger here in Mark and go back to Matthew 24. Look at Matthew 24 and verse 15. Here's Matthew's version of it. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, 
standing in the holy place. You see how he gives us more information here. So the abomination of desolation is describing a specific event that the prophet Daniel prophesied. It's something that is made to stand, according to Mark, where it should not be, but Matthew makes that much more explicit. He says it'll be standing in the holy place, that is, in the temple. There will be an event that comes, at the, as we will discover, at the midpoint of the tribulation, that for those living at that time will be an obvious sign. When this event occurs, Jesus says, you will know that the events that just happened, described in verses 5 through 13, were not Braxton Hicks contractions that time, but were really the beginning of the real birth pangs. So what is this catastrophic event that really marks the end? Notice he says it's the one spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So we need to go back. Go back with me to Daniel chapter 9. Let's start in verse 1 to get the context here. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. In other words, at a particular point in his history there in in Babylon, under Darius or Darius, he discovers in Jeremiah that God had said how long his people would remain in captivity. And so, verse 3, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So he prays in light of what he's discovered in the Scripture that Jeremiah said there would be 70 years captivity and Daniel begins to pray in light of that. In response to his prayer, a response comes from God. Verse 20, Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, and by the way, if you've never read Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, it is an amazing, amazing prayer and a great example of pouring out your heart in repentance before God. But while I was praying and speaking, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel whom I'd seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. In response to Daniel's prayer about the time of the captivity, remember Daniel is captive in Babylon, The people of Israel have been carried away captive. They're in the middle of this period. Daniel discovers it's a 70-year period prophesied by Jeremiah. He prays for insight. And in response to that prayer, here's the prophecy he received. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. 
So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, that is back in verse 20, the prince who is to come, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That is an amazing prophecy. By Jerome's time, who translated the Latin Vulgate, there were already nine different interpretations of this passage. But it is one of the grandest, most majestic prophetic passages that exists on all the pages of Scripture. Now, I I want us to walk through this. So notice what he says here. Notice, first of all, that it is a prophecy about a period of time that lasts for 70 weeks. In reality, the word week is not in the Hebrew text. Literally, it reads in Hebrew, 70 sevens. What kind of sevens? Is he talking about sevens of days, of months, of years, or indefinite periods of time? Well, the word is used 20 times in the Old Testament, and context always determines what it means. The context here demands 70 units of seven years. Let me say that again. It demands 70 units of seven years. 70 weeks composed of seven years each. You do the math on that, 70 times 7, you have 490 years. This is a prophecy about a 490-year period in Israel's history. Now, how do we know he's talking about 70 weeks of seven years each? Well, first of all, notice back up in verses 1 and 2 that Daniel has been thinking about years And specifically, he's been thinking about why 70 years of captivity? Why did the Babylonian captivity last for 70 years? Why did that happen? Well, Leviticus 25.4 demanded that every seventh year, you remember this? Every seventh year was to be treated like a Sabbath in the land of Israel. And that seventh year, the land was to lie dormant. But... Israel ignored that command. And so God, part of the reason God took them into captivity was because they refused to obey that command. Listen to 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20. Those who had escaped from the sword, Nebuchadnezzar carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. And listen to this, verse 21 of 2 Chronicles 36 to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. God 
punished Israel for not observing those Sabbath years every seventh year. Therefore, he put them into captivity for the 490 years they had failed to observe the Sabbath year. If they, for 490 years' time, they had failed to observe every seventh year as a Sabbath year, that means 70 times they had failed to observe the Sabbath year. And so he sent them into captivity for 70 years. So, there's this pattern. There was a period of 490 years when Israel did not observe the sabbatical year. That was followed by 70 years of exile to make up for those years they had not. That was followed, according to Daniel here, that was to be followed by another 490 years or 70 weeks of seven years pertaining to Israel's history. So clearly, in context, you have to be dealing with 70 weeks of seven years. In addition... If you try to use 490 days or 490 weeks, it's impossible to fit the events that are described in this passage into that context. So years is the only thing that makes sense. Now, we go back to verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. This is specifically for Israel and for Jerusalem And of course, Daniel had just prayed for both back in verse 19. So notice, in light of this prophecy, six results are to be accomplished during this 70-week period. This is in verse 24. He mentions six different results that God is seeking to accomplish during this 490-year period. First of all, to finish the transgression. That is, to end Israel's long apostasy. This 490 years was going to bring their long apostasy to an end. Verse 24, to make an end of sin. To judge sin once and for all. The idea here is to to seal something as you would put it in a package so that you can't see its contents. To judge it once and for all. Verse 24 says a third result of this 490 year period is to make atonement for iniquity. The word atonement here is the normal Old Testament word for atone. It it means to cover. The result is forgiveness, to accomplish forgiveness for iniquity. Now notice the first three of those results all deal with sin. The next three all deal with righteousness. Look at the fourth in verse 24. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Literally, to cause righteousness to come. Messiah will bring in that which will cause Israel to become righteous with an eternal righteousness. A fifth result of this prophecy in the period of time that it describes is to seal up vision and prophecy. It's like our phrase, to wrap it up. God will fulfill all he has prophesied regarding Daniel's people and the holy city. It will be closed. It will be consummated like a book that is finished and sealed up because it's done. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his series, The Future According to Jesus. Tom will bring you part 10 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. 
Well, Tom, church history has had its host of soothsayers, false prophets, and faith practitioners who all predicted when the end times would occur. How should the believer respond when they hear of such claims? We need to remind ourselves what the Lord said, and that is, no man knows the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father. And you'll remember he told his disciples just before his ascension in Acts 1 that we are not to concern ourselves with the time, he uses the word chronos, or with the era, the period of time, the circumstances of his return. Instead, we are simply to live in anticipation of it every day. And that's what we need to remind ourselves, is while there are events that come before the second coming, there are no events yet to come before his return for us, the church, in the rapture, that we will be gathered to the Lord and he will come for us soon. It may be today, it may be during our lifetimes, or he may delay his coming for another thousand years, but come he will, and we're to live in anticipation of it. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.